0: Episode 42, show me the money. Thanks, Andy Millman, for these fantastic notes talking about economic justice tonight on the podcast. So from this Neolithic revolution, this period in which hunter-gather proto-societies, they began domesticating crops and livestock, leading all the way to the present, the political and the mythological, the economic spheres of life have almost always been inseparably Intertwined with one another. Now, this has been proved at times to be incredibly helpful for those who control land and resources while simultaneously being the cause of great pain and oppression for marginalized societies. Giving this a bit of a backdrop, Andy talks about the cradle of civilization, the area in the ancient Near East between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, which was one of the regions of the world where many anthropologists and archaeologists believe that modern civilization began. So while the region was fertile and a source of life, it was also the victim of unstable weather patterns, perpetual warfare, and inhospitable surrounding terrain. So because of this, bad years were fairly common, and they almost always resulted in a loss of one's livelihood, and at times their lives. So out of this reality, people began to worship naturalistic gods who could choose to either offer sustenance or famine. And priests and shamans and oracles saw their societal roles take on a socioeconomic dimension. Priests then became the ones with the power to keep the economic machine producing. Now, as these early civilizations and these communities settled into more permanent cities, the roles of priest, political leader, and chief, economist, were collapsed into one with the dynasties of the pharaohs. These pharaohs were seen as literal gods with the power to provide military leadership and to distribute food and goods to the populace. To rebel against Pharaoh was to bring upon economic ruin and the wrath of the gods. Slowly, economic stratification began to emerge with those in power, so you have royal families, military families, and priests altogether having access to incredible amounts of material wealth. And those without power, these neighboring tribes and enslaved captives being forced to work as conscripted laborers and slaves— Now, how do faith communities respond to this? So, as these socio political economic systems, as well as similar systems that developed on the Indian subcontinent and in the Far East, as they led to more and more economic exploitation and religious manipulation, many of today's well established religions developed in protest. All three Abrahamic religions draw heavily from this Exodus narrative and the story of God's liberation of the oppressed. The Buddha, Sodom means to escape from the cycle of pain and suffering in this life. Israelite prophets like Amos and Jeremiah spoke explicitly against the exploitation of the poor by those in power. And the prophet Muhammad himself spoke out against hoarding, fraud, forgery, and labor exploitation. So this idea of economic justice became so central to these early communities of faith that it was inscribed in their sacred texts. And became one of the primary causes of tension between them and their neighbors. They asserted that all wealth and property belonged to God, Yahweh, Allah, etc. Not the ruling elites. And they held that all of humanity were appointed as trustees and stewards of creation, not just political rulers. So predictably, the surrounding kings and the Caesars, the emperors and the warlords took this as a threat to their power, and they violently shut down any attempt at economic reorganization. In spite of all this, these early faith communities attempted to reorganize their lives in a way that was economically just. So these principles like gleaning and providing food, shelter to the stranger stood in direct opposition to the imperial model that could only exist as long as those at the top hoarded as much wealth and power as possible. By sustainably focusing on the local community and relying on their neighbors, there was no longer a need for a Caesar God. And many scholars believe that it was this rejection of the Roman economic order that ultimately led to the murder of Jesus of Nazareth by the Roman state. Now, let that sink in for just a second because in the last couple of episodes we talked about resistance, reading Romans as resistance. If you haven't heard those episodes, go back and listen to our interview with Ann Dunlap. Now, if we continue uh, this, this narrative that where Andy's taken us, this trajectory, we have to ask the question, what does economic justice look like in 2017? Because ultimately, we want theology to be practical. We don't just want to be a bunch of people talking in a pub or on a podcast, blah, 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 blah. What does it look like today? Now, it can be hard to nail down exactly what economic justice looks like, but it's pretty easy to identify what it is not. Gandhi called poverty, and I quote, the worst form of violence on the planet. And Quaker James Gilligan, he had the following to say after crunching the numbers, and I quote, every single year, two to three times as many people die from poverty throughout the world as were killed by the Nazis over their six-year reign. This, in effect, is the equivalent of an ongoing, unending genocide, perpetuated on the weak and the poor every year of every decade throughout the world. End quote. The Southern Poverty Law Center defines economic injustice as this, being punished or exploited because of their economic status. And these are usually people living in poverty in minority communities. Economic justice would therefore be seen as the opposite of And it could take on both personal and communal dimensions. On a personal level, we can pursue economic justice by being more conscious about how and where we spend our money. For example, by patronizing local farmer markets and committing to use only union made products, you and I are in effect using our money to make a political and socioeconomic statement. We're saying that we value ecological stewardship over the exploitation of the planet. Similarly, Buying union-made products say that we value fair compensation and the right to organize collectively. We can also make decisions as a community that seek a more just economic order. In the Abrahamic faiths, we see repeated stories about the collective management, this distribution of resources in order to offer hospitality to the marginalized and the oppressed tithing, you've heard of this before, I'm sure, giving 10% of one's assets as an offering back to the community. And the term is zakat, the third pillar of Islam, mandating charitable giving to the poor. Both of these show that redistribution was a central tenet of religious communities in the ancient Near East. In 2017, this communal pursuit of economic justice, it may still look like dropping a few dollars for the poor in the offering plate or the alms box. But it also may take a more active role through initiatives like the Moral Monday Movement. This is an intergenerational interfaith movement, and it's using the role that faith communities play in their towns and in their cities to leverage power and demand a more equitable distribution of wealth. Some of the questions that we'll be asking tonight are, you know, where do we see this current relationship between religion and politics and our economic leaders, and what is this that's different between this uh, structuring of the Egypt uh, Egyptian world and these Roman empires and then our current political and religious and economic context here in the United States today? If you like this episode and any of our episodes, please go to the Brew Theology Podcast over on iTunes. Rate it, review it. Please share it on Twitter. We're at brew underscore theology. Also, we're on Facebook and Instagram at brewtheology. The website, my friends, brewtheology.org, just like our friends in Canton, Ohio, others in New Jersey, and many more, as I hope throughout this year, please see what it looks like for you to partner, to build a chapter, to do this thing called Brewing Theology in your towns, in your communities, with your friends and your family, do it in a pub, do it at a brewery. We've got all the resources for you, the curriculum, the leadership manual. I cannot wait to partner with you in that endeavor. This episode is brought to you by Call to Arms Brewery. Call to Arms Brewing Company is up in the Highlands on Tennyson in Denver, Colorado, A really great neighborhood. I would say, for me personally, the second best neighborhood in the U.S. of A. behind Platt Park. Call to Arms makes amazing beer. Uh, These guys tonight have given us their Kolsch to drink during this episode. They're also going to be at TheologyBeerCamp.com. Make sure you get your tickets August 18th and 19th in Denver, Colorado. Next, we're going to be at the Wild Goose Festival. Go to thewildgoosefestival.org. Get your tickets for that. We're going to have a booth on the main road as well as having a session where we talk and we talk about a little bit of what it means to prost, P-R-O-S-T, to cheers at the end of the night. Lastly, we'll be at the Goose Cast stage doing a podcast on Friday night between 5.30 and 6.30 p.m. Use the promo code goosecast seventeen. And you'll get a little promo code for the Wild Goose Festival. We'll be there in July, July 13th through 16th in Hot Springs, North Carolina. If you like some summer swag because it's so hot outside, make sure you go to the Brew Theology website. Click under swag and get yourself a tank top. If you don't like tank tops, we got some great tri-blend shirts as well. Also, for your toddlers and your kids, we've got onesies and we've got little kid t-shirts in pink if you like pink or blue, black, all different kinds of colors. Thank you, my friends, and we will see you on the other side. Peace. Okay, here we are. Rob and Steph's back patio, drinking some nice beer from Call to Arms. The Tennyson Standard Kolsch. It's a 5.5%. It's Delicious. delicious. There you go. I'm Ryan. You know my story. Uh, we're not going to cover that right now because we're going to dig right into the questions. And who else do we have?
1: I'm Janelle. And I'm Megan. <laughs> no, Megan,
0: not to be confused with Negan Megan. from The Walking Dead.
1: <laughs> no, it's actually Megan. Yep. I mean, it's whatever, whatever you want it to be. So. It's Megan. So, so
0: you, you've heard all of our stories before. It's like the ex-Nazarene, the ex-Mormon, and the ex-Baptist.
1: We're a good crew.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we're talking about economic justice. And asking this first question, what do you see as the current relationship between our religious, political, and economic leaders? And on top of that, what is the, what's, what's different between the structuring of the Egyptian and Roman empires and then our current political, religious, and economic context here in the U.S. of A? So starting off with just the current relationship, is there a relationship? Is it interconnected? Are people aware that it's connected or unaware? This is, this is an easy one to start with, yeah, for sure. Andy, Andy wrote these questions in there, like the first one right off the bat the jugular.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's, it's fair to say that there is a relationship in the United States, especially between uh, evangelical Christianity and our political system. Now, that makes some of us not want to use the name Christian at all at times. And I do think you asked an interesting sub-question there of do people know I think some do, but I think some don't think that it's a real like, overlap. But when we start looking at the history of politics and religion in the United States, we're talking about the Protestant ethic and uh, what it means to be successful. That, that means that you're economically blessed. And obviously in our world today, having political power also seems to fall into that category of being blessed by God. So definitely, I think there's a relationship there.
0: So typically, this is a relationship of power. power. There's the power over, power under, power within. And so this would be a power over structure. Yeah. I think maybe the difference would be, if you look back at Egyptian cultures and all the ancient Near Eastern cultures, is it was a very theocratic system. It was emperor, Caesar, Pharaoh down dictated. And now probably why people are unaware of it today is because it's in this form of a democracy in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And so even though you had a certain person who was elected president number 45 due to a very higher power over structure of religious leaders in the West, people are still, they still think that, Oh, the separation of church and states, democracy. There's not really a connection between the economy and politics and religion where if you really break it down, these people who are successful religious people are, are tied in, To some moolah, absolutely. Some money, money, money. Yeah,
1: or yeah. Whether it be money or like, um, like money, like personal money, or just in a way, like some of these religious structures are in a way their own empire, owning um, fields and hotel chains and large corporations, um, and those are the ones that also have the power to sway certain votes the way the way certain states votes, depending on their high religious population. I'm thinking of Utah, but I know it's not unique. I was gonna Utah. ask
0: you specifically about Utah, <laughs> Megan.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean there's a there's a there's a very Utah's votes are very much impacted by one, the the just the religious identity there of the large population of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, but it's also um Mormon mindset also influences um even just like local business um, and and it can be found in in a lot of mainstream Christian faiths today too. It's very um pro capitalist pro um free market and and i and I find it very interesting how <laughs> a lot of these religious groups vote in blocks and that affects like everyone's uh, that affects their local economy. And so, um, yeah. So I think, especially in terms of religion, um, some of these, some of these entities own, I mean, corporations and farms and have their own welfare system for their members. I'd say that that gives them a, a a financial gain. And then that's how they're able to sway many votes as well, especially in Utah.
0: So I don't want to talk about Utah on that, but Please. I was told that, so Mormons now can either, is it drink Coca-Cola or Pepsi products, one of the two, because of somebody who's higher up, uh, who's associated.
1: So 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 that whole, so the whole like no coffee or tea or alcohol comes from the word of wisdom, um, which is a Mormon scripture. But as far as I know, there are Mormons that abstain from drinking soda and Coca-Cola and Pepsi, because um, I remember going to Mormon dances and there were no like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or things like that. I actually don't think you can buy drinks like that at BYU or on Temple Square in Salt Lake City. Um, you can you can certainly buy really good chocolate milk, but um, it's that's something that's not actually doctrinal. Um, people say it's because of no caffeine, but actually most Mormons will agree that that's actually not a rule. It's more of a cultural thing. Certain Mormons don't believe in caffeine, um, but Mormons can always drink Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And it's one of those cultural things. They own one of them, don't they? I, you know, I, was, yeah, that's what I, I remember was, you brought that up to, look to me. This up I don't right remember.
0: Now. Not seeing it. Oh, we can look at Snopes.
1: But I will say the the Mormon. I think it's the Creamery Ooh. at BYU makes like the best chocolate milk. So I mean, I will give <laughs> Snopes, them that. by
0: the way, I'm just going to. They for did the not record, sponsor
1: me, by the way. They don't want to, me to speak for them. But, but I will yeah. say that they do make really good chocolate milk. I gotta
0: go here for the record. So the claim is that Mormons own Coca Cola. That's what I've been told for years. Mm -hmm. Guess what? It's false.
1: (laughs) What? The Jehovah's Witnesses are... According to Snopes.com.
0: Okay. Okay. Who would have thought? See, all these assumptions that we have about certain religious people. I'm sorry, Mormons. For years, I've thought that. So there is a relationship between religious leaders and people in higher-ups in the economy and those who hold office. Yes, it's connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Okay. Well, is that a good thing or a bad thing?
2: Well, I think the problem with power is that it it is often a corrupting influence. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. And so, I mean, having, I think all of us have served in ministry in one way or another, uh, we know that, you know, those wealthier board members, wealthier church members can often decide the color of the carpet or what the new outreach is going to be or, you know, other details around the church, and that's not, Spoken about necessarily, but we all know that it happens um, and so I think that as you see that amplified into bigger and bigger systems, the level of corruption and the level of compromise is going to get larger and and part of that's just systemic, but I do think that we need to recognize that those connections are there i mean forty five is not religious from everything we know about his actual religious Quote unquote practices, um, but yet just saying a few key things and uh, quoting scripture badly is enough to gain power in certain circles. And uh, then that becomes corrupting over the whole thing. I know a lot of Christians that are just mortified by this fact and don't want to be identified that way, don't want to say, I'm a Christian, not because they're not Christian, but because I don't want to be associated with that. That's not what I believe. That's not what I practice. And there are many, many Christians out there that are doing the kind of work we're talking about tonight that are not happy with the way the system is working.
0: Right. And I think it probably gets really confusing and dicey when you have somebody who's higher up in a church religious system, like who's a deacon or an elder, who's also potentially a lobbyist in D.C. or even in the state, and then, you know, th- th- that gets even, whew, because then you've got, okay, he's, giving, he's getting money for two different types, for one or organization or company, and also the guy that the preacher needs to sort of appease in his congregation. Hmm. And
2: or- then if we take away restrictions on uh, churches being able to speak about political uh, campaigns and candidates, I mean, you, you cannot deny how interconnected these will be.
1: Yeah, I, I even think, like, I'm trying to relate it to, to Mormonism in that Mormonism is kind of different. It's very much structured in a, in a centralized way. Um, it, so it's not like there's necessarily that's somebody that sponsors a certain congregation somewhere. It's very, it, the money is kind of centralized. Um, everybody tithes, and that's all put into this, like, global Mormon money pool. Um, but I always recall leaders that, had established careers or men that had established careers were always the ones that kind of got bumped up. If you look at the apostles in the, in the LDS church, they're all like, um, people that were teachers or lawyers or surgeons or pilots. They weren't like, um, I don't know. They're not like people of trades or, you know, and, and not even saying those aren't established careers because, you know, people can work in trades, but they're, they're definitely careers where you have the potential to be more opulent than others, um, and more white collar, more yeah, and um, something that you can definitely retire on. And so, a lot of these apostles go on and they, once they become apostles, they write books and they just like make all this money. And so, um, so it's not maybe it's not necessarily that even local leaders get paid more, but it's who has more authority anyway. Um, and it's always the ones that are more established. So,
0: Yeah. So what do you think the pursuit of um, economic justice, according to your childhood framework, um, I mean, what, was this a part of your faith community? Is it a part of your current faith community? Which maybe that's the second part of the question. And uh, if it was, how so? And if not, why do you think that this pursuit of economic justice, which we talked about earlier in the notes, um, why, that, why that was or wasn't a part of your upbringing? And then we'll get to where you are today?
2: So in my tradition, um, it really wasn't. uh, We, the Church of the Nazarene, is in over 140 countries. They have missionaries. And so I grew up knowing that stuff and hearing missionary stories. And um, that that was the focus. The focus was going there and providing for people there. And absolutely, some of that was for economic justice. Like a good friend of mine was a surgeon at a hospital. They, they helped build one of the first hospitals in Papua New Guinea. And that is an economic justice issue, absolutely. But never would it have been referred to that way necessarily. And so I think that that is sort of a maybe. I mean, I think a lot of that good work is done by missionaries, um, but it's not always the way we talk about it. I think definitely one of the problems that has kind of come to a head in, in that denomination is that when we talk about compassionate ministry, which is our way of talking about economic justice here in the States, um, it's just not, I don't feel it's em, as embraced as readily as supporting people overseas. Um, I definitely have been parts of conversations where it's not seen as doing missions work, it's not talked about or um, responded to as being as valuable or as important because you're not sharing the gospel. You're just feeding people or you're just providing a clothes closet. And so that's, that's frustrating now to look back and kind of see that dichotomy even more clearly.
0: Yeah. Or there was a little bit of a bait and switch, even though they wouldn't want to use those words where you give somebody something physical in order to give them something spiritual. right? And I, remember, yeah. I even have this certain pastor in my head. Who was a, a pastor of mine not that long ago? And he would always talk about that. We give people this, this tangible substance, this thing that is good, in order to show them the gospel, which is good, where there was a dualism. And so, in answer to this question growing up, that w- it, there was a very dualistic worldview. So, no economic justice's pursuit of social justice were very liberal things. And they would say, well, let the government take care of the government. So, free market capitalism, even, even though they wouldn't say is godly, kind of had its own level of godliness. But you let that take care of itself, because if that crumbles, then you'll have people who won't go to church anymore. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, well, we would, let's, let's see what would happen in you know, certain countries if that, if that falls apart. Um, and then, you know, on the other end, you have uh, let's just save souls. Because saving souls is really what matters. That's not, all that matters. Not about putting uh, a roof over somebody's head, making sure that there's no systemic issues of racism or injustice or... Gender bias. You know, right, all these things. So that that was looking looking back, we never thought about these things in those terms. But I do feel like that's very much of a Western evangelical mindset that wasn't probably a it was not a part of the early church. There Mm-mm. even even up until probably the Reformation, churches wouldn't they would be confused by that kind of mindset.
2: Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, we know early on, even in Acts right there, it's about let's take care of your physical needs and your health and safety needs before we take care, before we worry about other things. Let's put everything together, make sure everybody can eat. Um, that idea should still be dominating our practice. And you shouldn't have to say a Jesus prayer to get a meal. That's ridiculous and honestly kind of heretical.
1: I, I see how it can, it can be applied in, in two ways, because I remember looking at it, um, as a missionary, for those of you that you don't remember me from other episodes, as a more missionary in a third world country, and um, I, I remember teaching people that probably couldn't, um, probably weren't always able to to afford their rent, and um, teaching them about tithing and how well it's kind of like your your debt to God. I mean, you have life here. You you know that's whatever you you bring in, it's, it's of God. So you have to like pay tithing. It's a commandment. And, and um besides the fact that I feel like, like crap now looking back on it, I would say that um part of, part of what we taught was very much, if you do this, you show your faith, God will take care of the rest. And I think that that can be applied in many ways as well um to other, to other faiths. If you do what you're supposed to, things will turn out how they are and how they're, how they need to be. God will take care of you. Just, just do it. And you hear all these stories of people like, oh, I didn't know if I should pay my tithing and I couldn't pay my rent, but I paid my tithing. And all of a sudden I got an envelope full of money. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's like the secret or something like what's going on here. And so um, <laughs> a,
0: a book reference.
1: A bo- and that's a book reference. Yeah, Sorry. But, you know, that was even used. Uh, my husband and I
2: were in a district licensing interview one year and we're told that we should be tithing, even though neither of us had jobs at the time well, you should tithe on what you expect God to bring you. And we're like, I don't understand how that works because like, I don't know how we're going to eat this week, but I'm glad you all feel righteous enough to say that and then to accuse us of not being faithful. Um, I think tithing is really tough. And when I talk to uh, some of the younger believers that I know, I mean, churches, if you wonder why you're not getting your tithe, it's because they don't trust you. And they're going to give to agencies and groups that they trust. And so until you earn their trust back, you,
0: telling them to tithe isn't going to do it. So maybe this goes back to sort of the, the dualism where the government takes care of, of, the, you know, of the people in, according to their policies. And the church, the church should be the ones really taking care of the world. So that's, that's almost what you hear from people who they don't want a, a liberal agenda in politics because they don't want it in the economy because they don't, they don't want to be taxed that much. Because ultimately, if there's this free market, capitalistic worldview, according, I mean, let's just look at it from a very broad, you know, bird's eye perspective. Yeah. Then you have more money to give to the church. And if you have more money to give the church, then we'll take care of the people of the world. Which in theory, I love. But the problem then goes to, okay, it doesn't look like the church is really doing her job. Nope. Because if, if, if it was, then churches would exist as healthcare centers. Mm-hmm. They would have uh, free legal advice. They would have clinics and they would take care of the poor. Now, some churches do. And some churches I know have gardens, which is great. Hashtag, sew it forward. Craig, if you're listening, you do some good work in Platt Park. But I mean, ultimately, uh, churches are known for manufacturing a system, a stage on Sunday to making sure people get paid and making sure that you, the pastor up there gives the people what they want to hear, are challenged a bit, but not too much. Don't rock the boat too much. So you put something in the play to keep the thing going. Whereas there are probably a lot of single moms in there out there and or yep. you know, divorcees who are separated who are who can't even pay their rent. Yeah. So the Eucharist, you come you know, you go forward whether, whatever your tradition may be, mm-hmm. and you either go forward, or you pass, you know, the little the little cups and the crackers. And maybe that time should be like you look to your neighbor to your left and your right and you go, Hey, is your is your rent paid? Uh, le- electricity, you got that going on right now? Do you have any doctor bills? But typically we don't, we don't think that way. No. So I think ideally if the church did operate that way, if it was, yeah, we're supposed to have, we're, we're the, the, the vehicle for economic justice in the world. Okay, great. Go for it. But because they're not, then I, I guess my stance would be, I'm actually okay with the government then saying, we're going to fill in where the church is not. Yeah.
1: Okay. That, that, that would be great. Um if, if more churches were like that, I would, I would agree. Um, I don't necessarily feel that the government has to do it. Um, I would, I would say that one of the problems is if, if you don't really know who else is in your congregation, I, yes, I, I was in a congregation that was very close-knit, but I've also been in other congregations that you kind of go and you fill a seat and it's, lit nicely and there's oh there's a cool like game room and there's a cafe but like nobody really knows each other Mm -hmm. no one's necessarily going to reach out to you or drop your name in this box and we'll give you a call or shoot you an email and yeah i understand like it's hard if it's hard to keep track of who is there all the time and who's not but i think that people would be more likely to give if they knew who was in their congregation and not necessarily knowing that other people were like oh well this person there's son needs, you know, glasses or I don't know, like I just bought glasses. And so I'm like, oh, it's so expensive, you know, but it's like, yeah, sometimes these little things like they, they add up. And if you don't know who's in need, if you don't know that person, you don't care as much And it. And I feel like that relates a lot, even in our like paying taxes, a lot of people are upset. They, they see people that abuse the system and there definitely are people that do. And then there's also people that definitely need it and it helps. Um, I have, I have some strong views on on the welfare that I'm not going to get into, but I will say that if people maybe reached outside their circle more, a little bit more, they would probably be more more accepting of where the money is going and, um, or wanting to give. So I think that's a problem um, that people face in wanting to give to their church. If there is specific programs in their church to help those in need, they might be more inclined to give to it if, if there was more personal outreach. Uh,
0: I think people are more willing to give in a church setting. If there's a special Sunday that says this money is going to go towards clean water wells in Haiti, you're going to get a a way bigger offering that Sunday.
2: But again, that's outside of the U S which is so interesting. That that was just
0: the example I had, but it could be, it could be any example with dealing with, you know, people in poverty.
2: But I think usually that, but that's where we have that is let's do charity water in Africa, you know, but okay, let's talk about the, women that are recovering from domestic abuse that are in our community? Are we willing to give money to buy
0: them feminine products? Oh, no.
1: Yeah. I, I think know. there's some.
2: Some do, absolutely. Some do. So
0: it's almost like there should be more of a transparency, and some churches do have this. And obviously, when we talk about churches, too, you've got all the different kinds of Protestant churches. You have the Catholic Church. Yep. You have uh, churches with no affiliation whatsoever. There's... As we all know, thousands of denominations. Yeah. So some churches are transparent and, and others, are doing it, and others hide their or, you know their budgets.
1: Or like just you know, I feel like since we all come from like a Christian background, we're just saying churches, but uh, just local religious or spiritual congregations as well. Mm-hmm. Is there? I mean, there's a lot of um, programs and social wel- welfare organizations that are sponsored by the Jewish community, by synagogues. And I'm sure, I mean, that's just, that's just my sphere of association is with that. And I'm sure there's other spiritual or religious congregations that do things like that. Um, and not to, not to beat a dead horse about the Mormon church, but I will say that there's some, there's a fund that you can contribute into that, that, um, Helps the local congregation. I remember hearing stories like, "Yeah, well, the money you pay in fast offering might go to pay for so and so's kids' glasses, or if they can't pay their rent that month, and, and it's all anonymous." And and I always felt like that was something special because it was, yeah, you know, it's probably going to help that the person in your congregation that needs it. And um, I like I think,
2: what you were saying earlier though about getting to know people. Oh, I yeah. think that that um. I think that's key. And one of the things that came up at my table on Thursday was this whole issue of shame Yeah, of how loaded the church is with shame that families that have needs, parents that have needs, children that have needs are so afraid to share them because of shame, because they're, they feel shame about sharing it and they're, they, they perceive shame from the system, from the organization, if they are not a hundred percent. And, um, you know, if you tune into the next podcast, we're going to address that a little bit. But that authenticity and that willingness to get to know your neighbor and to not, you know, put shame on them for sharing the truth, it, it's hard. Could someone take you for a ride? Yep. Could they take advantage of your congregation? Yep. It's happened. But that doesn't mean that we stop helping. Um, it doesn't mean that we, we shy away from getting to know uh, people. And meeting them where they are.
1: Definitely.
0: And that could be a part of that Western worldview that we're so embedded in. This goes back to when we had Tink Tinker in the pub a couple months ago. He talked about worldview and how we feel like I've, I've earned this. I've worked hard. This is my money. Mm-hmm. And if I give it to somebody, okay, this is the goodness of my heart. But then you watch somebody trample over your gifts. And we've all had people who have done that before. And then you get jaded. Well, what about just making sure that you have no expectations? So you give this gift, and I'm still I'm still dealing with this personally myself with certain people. You give gifts out of the goodness of your heart, and yet you don't have any expectation of what happens to that mm-hmm. gift. And I think that would change with a uh, with even taxation. That would change with tithing. Yeah. That would change with even what you give to the church. Those pastors and leaders might give that to things that you don't agree with. Guess what? It's out of your hands now.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. W- so yes, that is so. That's. I totally see where you're coming from on that. I will say that there needs to be transparency and there also needs to be a plan. And I, and, and you just, you kind of, you mentioned taxes and I can, I can say that, um, is probably ubiquitous in all these situations that yes, there is an intention of why you are giving the money. This is true, but there needs to be an effective plan. I mean, if this is something that's been established, it needs it's not another test run for years and years and years. If okay. there's a problem, fix it and make my efforts and I'm going to donate worthwhile, even though, mm-hmm. yes, it does me some good to know that I'm given and whatever, and it's a very nice t- tax write-off and yada, yada, yada. But if it's a test drive after 10 years, then I, I will feel like I'm. there could be more done with it.
0: Yeah, I I actually 110% agree, and I I do wonder, what does sustainability look like within each kind of program that we're doing, that we're working on, whether it's within church or NGOs or the government? And because all these things that they're collaborating together, whether we're talking about the tiny homes here in Denver that are happening, what is sustainability in 10 years? That's a great buzzword that people have, and uh, or maybe it depends on the program, depends on the context, some things... You say, oh, I'm going to get jaded if this continues that way, and this program is so dysfunctional. Uh, you know, I, I, so there's tweaking that needs to be done pretty much within any system because no system has it right, whether mm-hmm. it is government. But what if there are religious governments that have had it right in the past? Mm. So speaking of religion, what do religion. you uh, all think about the major prophets of the world's largest you know, religions, such as Jeremiah and Amos in the Old Testament? or Mohammed, and they spoke so explicitly against economic injustice. And what do you think that they would say to the current adherents of faith communities that they represent today? Christianity, Islam, we could talk Judaism, Mormonism, and Christianity are... Kind of connected, but separate, obviously. Uh, you
1: just offended, like, tons of listeners. What? What, what is it? What, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> there,
0: there's definitely no, there's some differences there's, like, there. huge
1: stigmas. <laughs> Mormons aren't Christians. Mormons aren't Christian. <laughs> Um Sorry. As an ex-Mormon, yes. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, I really don't care. I really don't care. Um, I will say, okay. So, so I, I study Torah, and... And I can't help but think of of the teaching of um, whatever fruit falls to the ground or whatever crops in your field fall to the ground. um, You leave those. And for people that are without, they can come in and they can, I think it's only the corners. If anyone's listening out there and I'm incorrect, I'm sorry, but I believe it's the corners. Yeah. The corners of the field open and, and that which falls to the ground are there for, for those that are in need to take, but you don't take more than is needed. And it's very, and that is also, part of the story of of the wandering in a desert you know don't take more than is needed don't take more mana that's needed and so um yeah they're willing to give and and it could be looked at in in like a cheap way like oh you're only giving them what fell or oh you're only giving the corners I mean, think about it like that's some that could be a profit as well um so if you're gonna sell that or you're gonna eat that yourself so what it fell on the ground one day you can clean it off don't be wuss. It's fine. And so if you're going to eat it, why shouldn't they eat it? There's a company, a soup company. I'm not going to name the name because I don't know what our rights are of naming major companies. But it's a great company. And they make soup. And they're based out of an East Coast state. And they're next to a very run-down city. Um, probably in the top 10 of the most maybe run-down or dangerous cities in the United States. And um, they started a campaign and you can actually buy the soup in, um, at your local market. And it, cause I'm pretty sure it's in, <laughs> nationwide, but it's uh, a soup that you can buy And every soup that you buy. They donate one to somebody else there. And so you're eating the same thing. And, and that's where I think charity comes into like people donating is a problem is that, um, you usually give what you don't want. And I think that the profits of, of of long ago would say if you're gonna you know do unto others have it you know do the same I mean, that's totally that's totally like not not a not a Torah quote but I will say that yeah if you're gonna eat it like that's also the quality of what you want to donate if you like don't give people scraps if you're too good to eat it yeah. give them the best
2: well and Dunlap may not want to be my friend after this but Um, I was actually really inspired uh, by this little thing that she said when she was here a couple weeks ago about part of uh, one of the ways we resist is by economic redistribution. And I've always had a really hard time taking stuff and donating it because I just feel like I'm a failure, like I bought this thing and I just have completely failed and I'm wasting money. And when she said that, and again, Anne, please don't unfriend me. you know, it made it, um, it made my willingness to donate the stuff that I have bought but haven't used more okay. Like, if I'm not going to use it, then why don't I give it to someone that can use it? Because someone out there needs it. I, as probably, if you've seen the website, you'll know that I'm plus sized and living in Colorado. Um, finding places to, to buy good clothes is a little more challenging and um, so I had clothes that I brought with me when we moved that I, you know, they have value, um, but I kept not finding a way to get them out of my garage. And um, I know this is silly, but I mean, once, when I, when she said that, and I had that realization, literally the next weekend, I put them all, they were already in boxes, put them in my car and took them to the thrift store because some other plus side woman out there needs clothes for her job or needs clothes for church or her family, and I have good ones to give. And uh, I know that may be really silly. It's okay. You can, you can laugh at me. But, um, but for those of us that do have stuff, if it's good stuff and you're not using it, then give it to someone who can, and that's okay, whether you get a write-off or not. It, it helps other people live well. And I don't know. I find a little bit of comfort in that.
1: Yeah. And that's awesome. Especially because you know, the struggle you're saying is difficult. I mean, of course, like what, it's, yeah, don't like, there are people that will donate for things that they identify with. And that's great. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with if you feel certain to donate to a certain cause because you've been in that situation, but you're not going to donate something else. Well, if you put your all in that one cause, well, if you know how it feels like that's awesome and you know how that felt mm-hmm. i don't know how that feels like i i don't know i could still fit in a little boy's clothes at target and like i'm happy with that and i'm not ashamed but like you know what like it's it's something that is a, is a struggle that somebody else has gone through and I, I think about other times that i've like struggles that i've been in whether it's been financially or or something else for somebody you could have easily donated to. And I'm much more inclined now to give to those things because I personally know. And so it means a little bit more. Doesn't mean that any other donation that isn't as personal or isn't as like, oh, so nostalgic or like maybe not nostalgic. I won't go back to that time. But you know what I mean? Like if it's not as emotionally tied, it doesn't mean it's worth any less. And and I know there are people that argue with that, but come on, like it's for the greater good, you know? Like <laughs> <laughs> the greater good. But I just I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome and it's not it's it's not lame. I would I also would like to add that I think that it's one of the teachings that I think most most um spiritual or religious groups could agree with is like don't take more than you need. Definitely uh, that's something I I would say is ubiquitous a teaching is don't take more than you need uh because somebody else will need it. So I think that's something that it's a very basic like lesson, but if it was, if it was used more, it would probably make much more of a difference. Because when you think about like clothes and donating clothes, great—that's somebody else not having to buy more clothes, and like that, those clothes exist. So like, why not use them? You know. So, I'd say that that's a very simple lesson. Something that would probably change the world. Just saying. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so all these religious traditions talk about that, and Amos talks about, you know, justice rolling on like a river. So justice is not just about your spiritual salvation, because salvation really is tangible, and it involves making sure people are fed and they have clothes and their health care is decent, at least decent. Or have it at all. Yes. So now we live in a time of this predatory lending, labor exploitation. And it's become normalized that most don't even notice that it's happening. So, for example, Andy talks about these payday loans designed to trap poor people in cycles of poverty and are allowed to exploit communities with um, impunity. So, what role do faith communities have in responding to this type of blatant economic exploitation? If any, do you think faith communities should rise up? Yes, for sure. Easy answer, yes.
2: For instance, uh, talking about the table that's here in Platt Park in Denver, Um, they are feeding people. Now, Platt Park isn't necessarily a poor community, but that is a great, it's still a great example of what faith communities and urban communities could do, would be growing food and giving it. Because one of the things that came up at our table was the lack of grocery stores in urban communities that people cannot get access to fresh food. And so if you've got a church in an urban community and you've got a little space, then plant a garden and then give that food away. And that may be some of the freshest food that the people around your church get. Um, and that's, that's a simple one. That doesn't take on big systems necessarily, but providing proper nutrition for people around you um, matters. Matters a lot.
0: And That's something that obviously we can do on small scales in communities. And it's, it has, you know, there are examples like you said. And what about, you know, backing up the, this predatory lending? Mm just exploiting the poor and taking advantage and keeping people in these systems of poverty. Cause that does seem overwhelming. Whereas, I mean, you and I could plant gardens and that's awesome and wonderful. And I love that people are doing that. But then when I think about these systems that are happening way beyond our control, I mean, is this when we do protest? Is this when we do read Romans as resistance and we get on the streets or we call, you know, call people, this is when it gets political, you know, you, you call uh, your representatives absolutely. and you,
2: I mean, I think we have to, One uh, you know, one of the guys at our table is an educator and he's like, we, we have a responsibility to educate people about these things. One of the reasons that these scams exist is because people don't realize often what they're getting into. They don't realize that it's a 29 or a 30% uh, interest rate. They don't realize that if they miss a day that then they owe several hundred dollars, you know, those kinds of things. And so educating people just... Even we, we went around the table and talked about, like, what's a skill that I have that I could share with someone else um, that might help them, whether that's building a resume or teaching them some basic economic things like this or what, whatever. Like, what are the things I can do to help educate? And this is one area where when we know what these things are like, when we know what predatory lending is like, when we know what payday loans do, tell people, as you have opportunity... Like just talk about it and make sure that people are aware, and absolutely call your senators' representatives, everybody, and say, "This has got to stop because they're not stopping it. They talk about it, sometimes they put bills forward about it, but it isn't stopping, and it needs to
1: yeah i I think a lot of people have all these different skills that that they can teach others and and I see that a lot too um certain groups i mean there's a lot of like people that are really into tech that do that teach tech like how to code and stuff like that for free at the at the denver library it's free like you can use a computer there you can learn school and that's something that could that could help you move forward in a career like there are there are a lot of people that have these skills that can do that and and so yeah in faith groups it would probably be a lot a lot have a lot more impact cuz it's a lot better organized than just a single person going out there but i think sometimes people are skeptical of a church offering english lessons cuz like come on i used to do that as a missionary and then i would say read this pamphlet and it's the plan of salvation like okay well can you memorize can you memorize moroni like that's like not english but you can memorize it and then you can read the book of mormon and so yeah maybe some people have like skepticism of why is this church offering this English class for free? Or why is this church offering this like resume thing? They don't really want to help me, right? And so I think that some people they're skeptical of it. And then some people that's great. They're looking for a community that wants to help them and that's exactly what they need. So I mean, it's gonna give them skills, also just be a support and family and it works. Um I think sometimes churches can be or religious organizations are hesitant to get involved in political issues because then if somebody doesn't side with your political issue, then you lose a member and you might like having come from an ideology where you don't want to offend anybody in certain ways politically. Um, I mean, that's somebody's salvation. If they're offended and they, and they misconstrue this political mindset with the church's teachings, like you could have offended somebody and you could put their salvation at risk. Like, coming from that mindset, there's so much more at risk in a way. So I can see why some religious organizations are hesitant to get involved in those things. Um, But I also say that people could definitely step it up because there's things that are like water rights, like, like water, like that's going to become a commodity. So if churches took more action on, on water or even just the environment in general, I don't understand um, why many Christian faiths are hesitant to get involved about the environment. That's something that, I'm sure people have answers for of why, but it's just still, I just, I don't find a logic in it, but that's something that I think people get behind um, in, but I think that there's a lot at risk um, taxes and all those things. Um, That's why I think some faith communities hold back.
2: And I think it's important to say, like if you have a faith community that would be interested in getting involved in this and you would like to help lead that movement in your church uh, or religious community, There are lots of organizations out there that are doing the work already and all you need to do is partner with them. So don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel or that you have to come up with all the curriculum or that you have to do everything by yourselves. Partner with other agencies in your neighborhood, in your city, and bring the message to more people. That's really what a lot of organizations and charity groups need. They need partners. And so just keep that in mind. If there's something here that's really, you know, triggering for you that you want to work on, then go find those groups in your community and work with them.
0: All right. Lastly. So every week we drink beer and we enjoy it. Some or of cider. us do. Some of us do. Not all cider. Of us. Sorry, Megan. Okay. <laughs> and they're expensive beers. Some of them are up to $7, $8, even more in very trendy areas like Rhino, which is now being gentrified and, uh, you know, five points and probably even this area at one point where we're at was at one point a different kind of an area with now five breweries and walking distance. So what role does this community, this brew theology community within Denver, what does it have in the pursuit of economic justice for communities? And, and Andy mentions mostly people of color who've been displaced so that we can enjoy craft beer and theological conversations. Can we do both? Because I don't think we're aware sometimes of these neighborhoods. You had to kick us in the butt at the end with this question.
1: No, no, no. Good, good. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> if you actually <laughs> listen to to your own topics, I will say that's good. Uh, that's something that needs to be brought to light. And sometimes maybe people don't want to, They maybe they, they're on a tight budget and they can't afford to buy that $7 beer. Um, and maybe they feel obligated to. It would be great to maybe to get some feedback also from people that attend what their views are on just going to breweries. Yeah. Cause beer is great. But I mean, like I can't even drink beer. It's great. I still go. But, but yeah, I, will but say, I would say like uh-huh.
0: even beyond like beer or any kind of alcohol, for instance, like the neighboring communities around, mm. I, I do wonder even if, so like what, and I'm not going to name breweries right now. Let's say it's brewery, a mm. not, brewery, a Does brewery, a have any idea of what's happening in their own backyard and do they care? Or do they really just want the hipster communities up and coming because that's really just, it's good for real estate, it's good for business, and at the end of the day, it's all about money. Yeah. now, some breweries do they do give back to nonprofits and other you know any kind of government organizations and NGOs, and I don't know about churches, but that's probably probably the last place they're going to give uh, and but yeah, I because I, I mean in, this is where it gets tough in the Western world, we want nice things
2: I think it's hard, uh, I think that. You know, one of the realities we face at Denver Brew Theology is we have, um, we don't have a lot of representation by people of color. And so maybe just even learning more about the communities that we go to and what's going on there. Learning about gentrification and um, the kind of issues that happen when people are moved out. So one of the places that we see this happening right now is on Broadway uh, south of I-25, um, we, we've seen old businesses and old apartments torn down and new stuff put in. And so who was there and where did they go and what did they do? And so how, you know, maybe just learning about the community around us, cause we are active in all of Denver and then reaching out to some of the organizations that work in those areas. Um, and I think you can do that whether you're in a big city like Denver or you're in a small town where maybe you have a, a bar and a brewery and that's it. But what's going on with those that are less, um, less well-off in your community and how can your group come together to maybe make a difference in their life?
0: All right. That was a good last word. I know we don't like to have last words, no. but you know what, Janelle? That was a great last word. Nice Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that was awesome. All right, guys. Cheers.
2: Cheers. Salute. My water.
0: There we go. Clink clink with a water bottle. Alright, peace.